Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What was it like growing up and attending school in the Soviet Union and other socialist societies? Did the lived experiences of children match the official rhetoric of the state or the Western Bloc? What agency did children even have? My guests today are Iveta Solova and Nelly Pietova. Together with Zhuzha Mili, they have a new co-edited book that explores the memories of everyday life in socialist societies, showing the multiplicity and political nature of childhood experiences. Childhood played a very important role in that process of colonization as well, because the child basically served almost as an index of what a society should become and also became almost as this container or space onto which these new kind of visions of society would be inscribed. Their memories challenge the master narratives that have come to dominate the way we think about the Soviet Union and other socialist societies, and ultimately, their work pushes the field of comparative education in new directions. Iveta Solova is a professor at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University, and Nelly Piatova is an associate professor at the Faculty of Education and Culture, University of Tampere, Finland. Their new book is entitled Childhood and Schooling in Post-Socialist Societies, Memories of Everyday Life. Iveta Solova and Nelly Pietova, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having us on Fresh Ed. Uh, Thank you, Will. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So you were both born in countries in the Soviet Union. Can you tell me a little bit about what what it was like to go to school and, and be educated uh, while growing up. So Iveta, what was it like growing up in Latvia? Well, this is uh, a pretty difficult question, actually. <laughs> and it's easier for me to answer that question in terms of what Soviet schooling experience was not. And it's partially because there are so many accounts of socialist schooling and childhood that are very stereotypical. And that's not necessarily what we um, as children experienced in our daily lives. So, for example, many of the documentaries or photographs of Soviet schooling are these stark black and white pictures or motion pictures that depict a pretty um, authoritative schooling. And I guess what I wanted to say was my own experience was nothing like that whatsoever. It was definitely not black and white. It was full of color. And it actually was full of all kinds of um, paradoxes, full of uh, optimism and dullness. 
definitely some ideological commitments, but also ideological absurdities at the same time. So there was nothing really predictable or very linear about that childhood. And what about you, Nelly? I mean, where, where, where did you grow up? In what country? I grew up in uh, the republic that was called the Russian Federation, and um, particularly uh, in the very western part of that republic, so very close to the Finnish border. The place was called Karelia, and I grew up in the capital city of this uh, part of the Russian Republic. And what was it like for you growing up in school? I mean, did you have a similar experience to what Iveta was saying about this sort of these paradoxes and the sort of stereotypical narratives of, the, you know, it's it's authoritarian and these black and white photos and, and videos, and but yet it was actually full of color and dullness and excitement. I mean, what was it like for you growing up in the Soviet Union and going to school there? I would definitely agree with Iveta that the, it's really hard to depict the experience in a kind of, uh, in a few sentences because there was so much about going to school that was both exciting because there were friends, there were different new things that we were learning. We had tasks in the school like um, organizing some um, events, some festivities, but also we had homework, we had um, exams and uh, some field trips so it's it's really really hard to kind of pick up an umbrella that would describe all of this very different experience just with one term because it was just um, both kind of disciplinary but at the same time um, a lot of kind of hidden resistance and um, a lot of fun also that we had with uh, my schoolmates. Is there a particular memory, Nelly, that sticks out to you when, uh, growing up and going to school? Well, there are many memories that um, come to my mind. Maybe one that I could share is about the kind of confusion that the perestroika time inflicted in, um, in both kind of students, parents, and teachers. So around the mid-1980s, as the society became much more... Um, uh, open and um, we got interesting newspapers and books that used to be forbidden in in the earlier times we started also reading kind of really um, interesting history of uh, the big people like Lenin and Stalin and all the events that we um, didn't know about because they were not part of the official history of the time. So I remember picking up a newspaper that had a little article on Lenin and it actually says that Lenin was also ordering people's killings. And that was quite shocking because, uh, well, in the kind of the official narrative of the school, we were taught that Lenin was the good granddad, that we could all kind of respect and and follow also his uh, perfect kind of character. So I came to school the other day, and then uh, as our teacher of literature was discussing Lenin, I raised my hand and I said, but look, we can't talk about Lenin in these terms anymore because he was killing people. And there was this silence in the classroom <laughs> because surely the teacher was, uh, was aware of um, all the different new newspapers and the content that they were distributing. But, but still, she decided that this was not the right narrative to practice in the class. And so my, grandpa, uh, my grandmother was called into into school my parents were called and and it was um 
Yeah, it was a strange moment of kind of everyone realizing that we can talk now in these terms and the media was full of these different revelations and still in the school, the, the teachers were not sure how to react on the knowledge that the children were bringing to school in that context. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I mean, the, the sort of the state narrative sort of gets undermined. The official discourse gets undermined by all these sort of other places that knowledge is, you know, circulates. Iveta, did, do, do you have a memory um, that sticks out to you growing up in Latvia? Absolutely. So one of my probably most memorable moments was uh, in the last year of high school, which was in 1989. So this is when everything was everything was falling apart completely, right? So everybody knew at that time in Latvia that we probably will not be in the Soviet Union for much longer, but things were still brewing. And in our last year of high school, when we were supposed to take examinations in all of the subjects, including in history, our school administration actually decided to cancel history exam. Because at that point, everybody knew that what we have learned was uh, not right, that it was actually the history that was uh, manipulated by the Soviet apparatus, but the new history was literally not yet written. And so for me, that was this really memorable moment because it was a realization how history is being written basically by real people in real time and how it's also being rewritten um, in the same manner. So, but as a high school student in the last year um, of uh, schooling experience, I uh, was absolutely thrilled together with all of my uh, fellow uh, friends to not having to take history exam so it was fun for us but also just as much fun um, as it was it also was a real history lesson at the same time a really serious history lesson in your new co-edited book you sort of make this idea that children are indeed and in fact political actors in this in this process of schooling and education so nelly you know based on your experiences can you tell us a little bit about how you see children as being political actors well in our book and and also in in the research that we are now undertaking uh continuing the book we think that children are indeed political actors because what we see in those um, numerous stories that our authors um, have shared in the book is that children reinterpret the environment in which they act and which they live on their own terms. And then they act upon this environment, introducing their own interests, their own motivations, their questions and um, critiques into that context. So in a sense, they're not necessarily engaging with this environment in very open kind of resisting terms, even though also in the book, we have many beautiful examples of open resistance to the system across the countries, across the context in which the children were living. But also it's, it's about kind of children introducing these little cracks into this system when they just act upon their own interests and motivations 
in different situations. And I, I would imagine this isn't necessarily unique to the Soviet Union. I would imagine that children are political actors in you know schools just generally. So what makes it so interesting to study children in the Soviet Union and seeing them as political actors? Well, uh, one way to answer this question is to go back to, to what Iveta was saying in the beginning, how children or how the countries and the education systems were depicted in Western literature, that basically everyone was following the ideology of the state or people were passive victims of the cruel regime. Also, the regimes themselves, I think, saw children as just kind of following the ideology of um, adults and, and, and policymakers. So this is a way to kind of counteract these narratives and to say that children had also quite interesting, mundane, also lives in those regimes and that by looking at these grand narratives that the macro narratives we really don't get a sense of how life was in those years across the countries. Iveta, did you want to jump in and add anything there? You're absolutely right. The similar dynamics also are happening in other contexts, right? And, uh, and in fact, we also see socialism as uh, an extension of uh, modernity project, right? And by extension, a project that also was linked very closely to colonization. And childhood played a very important role in that process of colonization as well, because the child basically served almost as an index of what a society should become and also became almost as this container or a space onto which these new kind of visions of society would be inscribed. There are multiple layers of this coloniality that are written onto the childhood. So one's through, you know, modernity, another one's through the Soviet project. And so it's really interesting to unpack all of these and also see the connections of the Soviet childhood to um, childhoods in other contexts. So, I mean, this makes me wonder, was the sort of master narrative of the Western view of childhood in the Soviet Union similar to the, the narrative that was being perpetuated by the Soviet state itself? Like, were these narratives very, very different or did they share any commonalities? Well, I think to me, an interesting example would be, so the Western literature would definitely describe the Soviet childhood as highly ideological and the Western childhood as not ideological at all, right? And, uh, and I think, you know, that in itself is, uh, you know, really revealing, right? Because there is as much ideology in the, you know, Western modernity project as there is in the, as there was in the Soviet one. And, uh, and I think childhood memories in particular are really wonderful tools to try to reveal some of this ideology and dig deeper into, you know, what's beneath it as well. And Nelly, where, where do you see some of these, you know, the master narratives of the Soviet Union coming into contact with the master narratives of, of, say, the West? Well, what I find really interesting in terms of how uh, children, for instance, were um, understood as actors in societies in both Eastern and Western, if I may use this language, literature, children were perceived as kind of um, socialized by adults and as passive followers of adults 
kind of ideas or policies or interests. So it's only actually very recently that childhood studies have changed the perspectives on children and have started to see them as agentic actors understanding the world on their own terms. So in this sense, kind of this, let's say, academic narratives of childhood on both West and East were very similar. And it's important also to say to disrupt the, I guess, this kind of binary understanding that uh, academic research on both sides uh, of the of the Iron Curtain was different in their treatment of children. So when you were growing up, Nelly, did you ever sort of, ima- like, do you have memories of thinking about the future when you were growing up? Well, that was actually a really difficult question because I guess for for a child growing in that system, the future was pretty, on the one hand, it was determined because we were um, kind of getting the message of building the society, building the egalitarian society, bringing the utopia um, into reality through our right deeds. So that was the kind of big discourse that we were growing inside of. But at the same time, of course, um, I had lots of plans and ideas for my future that were not about following the ideology, but were more about having a interesting and good life. So I was planning perhaps um, the place where I would study. I really wanted to leave my hometown and go to St. Petersburg or Moscow and one of the universities where I could study different languages and um, kind of understand also different countries, different cultures. So this kind of very mundane plans that I was making inside that system, not considering the big task that I was supposed to look forward to. And Iveta, what about you? I mean, were there any sort of visions of the future that were different from what was being, you know, taught? inside schools that you were you were sort of imagining huh <laughs> so there were definitely lots of many visions and some were definitely following what was taught right by the ideology and by schools and I actually very vividly remember being still very young maybe seven or eight years old and standing in very long line for bread and for maybe some sausages or sugars that was uh rationed at that time, right? And so we all had coupons and we had to stand in long lines. And I remember very, very vividly standing in the long line with my mother and my grandmother and thinking, huh, but very soon there will not be lines and we won't even have to pay for any food. <laughs> of course, that never happened. <laughs> but that definitely was a very clear vision in uh, my mind of what will happen very very soon and of course it never that uh, vision never came to life i mean it's what's fascinating to me is that there is this sort of you know when a child is growing up there is this sort of development of a critical consciousness that happens but it's happening within these systems that are quite ideological either in the soviet union or or you know in the west or wherever it is there's some sort of ideology at play and it's sort of that that navigating that space, which must be, you know, it's, it must be really hard for every child that goes through that, let alone remembering about it and thinking about how it actually impacted your future. So, I mean, I wonder, you know, those moments that you both mentioned, do you think that they sort of shaped your own ways of thinking about the Soviet Union in general? Like, as you, 
you know, are now both professors of education reflecting back on memory and uh, in, in socialist countries, you know, how, how does your own, how do your own experiences shape the way you now think about the Soviet Union? Actually, I wanted to jump really quickly in here to maybe tell uh, a little bit more about how also within the Soviet Union, there was just not one ideology that was being imposed on people, right? There were actually so many other visions of what the society is and uh, so many different ways in which people led their lives. And growing up as a child in Latvia, actually, I very personally experienced these contradictions in my life because I grew up in a family that was um, ethnically mixed. So we spoke Russian and Latvian at home. And uh, as much as we experienced Russification, there was also a really, really strong sense of Latvian national identity, right? And as a child, we had to learn to navigate these different spaces, right? And uh, live in between the, actually act accordingly when we were expected to act as a Soviet Russian child or when we were expected to act as a Latvian child, right? And even at a very, very young age. Actually, we uh, in the book, we have uh, a chapter that devoted all to the politics of the hair bows in girls' hair. And so this is a chapter that Nelly and uh, Zhuzha and I wrote together, also with uh, Alena Idarova. And so in the chapter, I actually write a story about my own memory of the hair bow when uh, the official school pictures were taking, taken at preschool. So all the girls were supposed to come with a big hair bow because that symbolized Russianness in a way, uh, or the Soviet citizenship, right? And uh, my parents very purposefully sent me to school without the bow that day. And in fact, <laughs> I think they probably also very purposefully kept my hair short when I was a child because they did not want me to be associated with uh, being Russian Soviet girl, but they wanted me to be a Latvian girl that would not wear big white hair bows for, especially for special occasions. So they sent me to school without the hair bow and there was uh, a lot of commotion. And uh, one of the caretakers in the preschool actually made the hair bow for me but the interesting part was that that day in the preschools, they actually took two pictures of me, one with a hair bow and one without it. So even at the level of the kind of official schooling experience uh, in a preschool, they also lived this double reality in a way, or this multiple reality, right? So they took one picture as was expected by the authorities and one picture as was uh, as my parents actually wanted it. And but for me, that was uh, one of the first lessons in uh, Soviet Latvian nationhood at very, very early age. Nelly, did you have to wear a hair bow in school as well? Yes, definitely. I knew that when we had special occasions uh, in the school, like uh, celebrations or when we had the um, when I was becoming a pioneer, for instance, I knew that it's it's obligatory to have a big white bow in the hair. But as Iveta was saying, and as I think you mentioned as well, as children, we knew exactly how to navigate these expectations. So we would hair, I would wear and my mom would make this big bow in, in my hair when it was expected. 
but on many other days, on regular days, we knew that um, this is not something that we have to do. And actually also wearing or not wearing the ball was a kind of signal to us how we were expected to behave. So on the regular days when we were not wearing these big balls in the hair, we knew that we can be much more fallible, much more flexible also in other in our behavior. And on those special days, so when the school photographs, for instance, were taken, we knew that this is when we have to act as um, ideal pioneers or um, good good girls. <laughs> we, knew the, we knew what roles we, need, we needed to play in these different situations. So do you think that, you know, this sort of experience, you sort of still live today? Like, are you capable of being that flexible living through multiple simultaneous realities almost, you know, being able to navigate these very different spaces, these different political spaces. I mean, is that something that you still do, do you think? Oh, that is, that's a tricky question. <laughs> <laughs> I think we write about that in our, in the article that we authored with Zhuzhen Neveta for Comparative Education Review, how as um, on the one hand, as kind of being born and uh, educated in the post-socialist socialist and post-socialist societies, we still kind of experience a bit of exclusion in Western academia. But I guess because we were born in this political context that we had to learn to interpret and navigate, we also now as adults, academics, we're not just accepting the roles that we are given by the outsiders, but we know also how to manage in those different spaces. And we know also how to, I guess, take advantage also of these ambiguous positions that we occupy in the field. So I think it, it, has, uh, it has made us more sensitive to, to these different outsider expectations, but also given us strategies to how to navigate them and how to play with them and not to submit to them. What about you, Iveta? Actually, one of our colleagues, Madina Tlostanova, she talks about this ability in terms of being a trickster. So you have at one point become so skillful at navigating different spaces and uh, that you may actually at one point also feel empowered to play tricks on others to maybe expose these um you know different spaces right and uh, actually keep people on their toes for the spaces that they allocate or the roles that they allocate for you which may be stereotypical or hierarchical on many different bases so i think as we also move up in the academic ladder and maybe have a little bit more power I think it's also uh, easier to play these tricks to challenge the system and to kind of expose maybe different rules that may apply to different groups of people within the system. Well, maybe one one thing that we kind of uh, also discuss in that article is that because we were brought up with this multiple identities, Iveta growing up in a, in a multicultural family. I grow up. I grew up also in a in a family with different languages, with different identities, uh, and then we were also educated in the West. So we kind of we are, let's say, multilingual also in terms of navigating these different cultural contexts and linguistic contexts. 
So we can also adjust when we travel, for instance, in, in our countries of birth. Uh, we know how to behave in those contexts. We know how to talk to, for instance, the people, the colleagues that we would like to work with. But also we adjust back in the Western contexts and know how to, how also what kind of language to use or what kind of, um, mm. um, yeah, the kind of the expected ways to behave also familiar to us. So we are cultural insiders on both sides, but also outsiders at the same time. Sometimes it's hard to say <laughs> what our positions actually are. I guess the, the final question I have is, how do you think this is going to shape the field of comparative education in which we find ourselves in? I mean, these, you know, the study of childhood memories in the Soviet Union and in socialist countries, the, you know, the realization that your childhood political actorhood has sort of shaped your you know adult political actorhood you know how then is this going to impact the very field of comparative education in your mind that's a great question too will and uh, for me there are a couple of different ways in which uh, such work can influence comparative education or maybe can deepen some of the comparative education research and one of them has to deal with memory itself and bringing memory as part of the real quote-unquote research. And, uh, and that, to me, is really fascinating because each time we look at meta-narratives, the memory pops up all the time constantly interrupting the meta-narratives. But we have been historically trained to ignore memory because it does not fit into the meta-narratives. So kind of refocusing our gaze on memory and actually giving it weight and uh, giving it uh, importance, I think really helps us to disrupt these meta-narratives and bring in other ways of life, ways of being that have been silenced by these dominant uh, narratives in the field. But another way um, actually is also just authorizing ourselves to talk on our own behalf and not have somebody else script our lives and script our futures. So much work in comparative education is about the other. We always uh, go somewhere to research somebody else to become experts on a particular group or a particular phenomenon, distancing ourselves from uh, that particular group or that particular phenomenon to make knowledge more objective, right? And uh, it's actually really problematic because we are, uh, you know, by default then scripting others. We are not really relating to the other in ways that would be meaningful. And uh, so for me, working with memory and uh, childhood memory in this way actually is kind of repositioning yourself as a knowing subject in the field, right? And authorizing ourselves to talk on our behalf rather than having others talk for us. And so that's really empowering. And what about you, Nelly? How do you see some of this, this work you're doing on, on memory and childhood narratives in, in the Soviet Union? impacting the field of comparative education? Well, I, th I see it also in many ways, as Iveta has already described. I think it's a, it's a really important question in terms of also like turning the, the critical eye on the field and asking why is it that we haven't worked with the memory before? Why is it that people who the research actually concerns were not 
allowed to speak on their own behalf. So I think it's it's also a way to continue this kind of critical discussion about where the field comes from, what are the legitimate sources of data that it uses, what are the legitimate questions, why is it that we have used so much time to study policy, national policy or international policy and translations of international policies, but not the kind of translations of these policies into very mundane lives of people whom these policies affect or shape their lives, but also might not shape at all, because still there are different logics that also act on the kind of everyday level. Another question is also about why is it that the field has concentrated very much on formal schooling or higher education? Why is it that there is still very little research on children below the school age? Because the many memories that our book also um, describes are actually memories of rather small kindergarten age children. So there is definitely space for research also on early childhood education on small children that um, comparative education could also um, make space for, let's say. Well, Yvette Slova and Nelly Piatova, thank you so much for joining Fresh Edit. It was a pleasure to talk today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Will, for having us. It's always uh, a great pleasure and fun. Yvette Slova is professor at Arizona State University, and Nelly Piatova is an associate professor at the University of Tampere. Their new co-edited book with Zhuzha Mili is entitled Childhood and Schooling in Post-Socialist Societies, Memories of Everyday Life. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Aktas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.